Let's turn again in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be uh, continuing in chapter 15 in, in what is really a, a unit. Uh, we could really take uh, verses 1 through 20 all as a unit together, but we're breaking it up for the sake of being able to spend uh, the time we need to on, on each portion. But remember that that we've seen in, at the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15, we've seen a, a contrast between the holy compassion of Jesus, uh, which brings healing and purification to people, and the hypocritical judgment of the Pharisees and scribes against those who do not follow their traditions. So that's the confrontation that's going on as we uh, pick up in verse 10 for our text this morning. So I'll read verses 10 through 20, and be noting as we read the, uh, the different groups that Jesus is going to be addressing here, and, and the words that he asks for us as well. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Well, you notice, I'm sure, the groups that uh, Jesus is uh, addressing here, and he begins with uh, the people. Now, he's been in this confrontation uh, with the Pharisees. He's denounced them in those previous verses to our text, as hypocrites, uh, he's been uh, very forthright and very, well, pretty severe with them in that word of judgment. But notice in verse 10, now he specifically calls the crowd's attention to himself. Uh, th this should catch our attention, okay? He, he's, he's, he's wanting to make sure this is the truth that everyone hears. So maybe you can picture yourself in that crowd. You've been watching this, this uh, confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and, and now he turns to you. Uh, evidently, he sees the truth that he's about to teach is something that you need to hear. And, and notice the imperatives here. Okay, he calls you, he calls the crowd, and then there's, there's two more imperatives there. Hear and understand. Hear and understand. Now, obviously, 
Okay, he's not talking about just physical hearing. We've seen him use this kind of language before when he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so, so when he says hear to you, he, he means listen. Don't be content with just having some sound waves impact your eardrums and transmit impulses to your brain. I want you to listen. Listen so that you can understand, so that you can grasp what I'm going to say here. Isn't it a great blessing that God cares enough about you to want you to hear and understand his word? That is incredible, isn't it? The one who created you cares enough about you to speak to you through his word. Well, who wouldn't want to listen then? <laughs> who would not want to understand? Receiving a word from the all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving God. We don't know specifically the, the response of all these people. We do know that many of them, it just went in in one ear and out the other. We know that many of them rejected his teaching. In fact, we read earlier that the, the whole reason he's using parables now so much with the crowds is because they refuse to believe him. And so he's giving them stories they don't understand. He, he has said as plainly as possible, repent of your sins, get ready for the kingdom, which means believe in me, and they've refused to do that. And so he said, okay, I'm just going to speak to them in parables. And he's explained those parables to his disciples. We want to be in that group that hears and listens, right? There will be a wonderful blessing for you as you hear and understand. And so he gives us this, this uh, beautiful epigram in, in verse 11. Uh, it, it, Jesus is a genius at communicating, and, and, and this is a, a wonderfully structured little epigram that really puts, it, puts itself in your mind, doesn't it? Once you hear this and pay attention to it, you, it's, it's put in words that you can recall easily. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now, it would be great if what we read next was, uh, and the crowds were astonished. Uh, the disciples thanked him for this great revelation of truth. But the disciples aren't getting it yet, are they? I mean, it's really, isn't it almost humorous to read in verse 12, then the disciples came to him. Probably this is Peter. He's usually the one who's doing the talking. He's the outgoing one among the disciples, and he's the one who's also always putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, so they come to him and, and ask him that question. Actually, this, the, the only way we know it's a question in, in the Greek uh, is it, sort of to guess from the context, because the original documents didn't have punctuation, but... This can probably rightly be taken as a question. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? 
If we take it as a statement, it would be something like, don't you know? You do know, don't you? <laughs> the Pharisees were offended at this saying. And we're, we're tempted to sort of scratch our heads. Why are you even bringing up the Pharisees at this point? It, it seems that there's still sort of a residue of, of uh, sort of respect or awe on the part of the disciples. I mean, the Pharisees are the ones, they're the religious elite. Okay, they're the ones that everybody thinks are, are so holy and so, so religiously observant. Uh, perhaps they're, they're still sort of in awe of this group that seems just on the outside so, so religious, so holy. Uh, they, they ought to know by now, though. <laughs> they ought to know by now that the Pharisees are at odds with Jesus. I mean, we could go back just in the Gospel of Matthew and find numerous places where they've been rejecting Jesus. And in fact, just uh, what could have been a few minutes ago, he's calling them pretenders, fakers, hypocrites to their face. What do they expect? <laughs> you know, do they think the Pharisees are going to love this? Well, Jesus is very patient. And he, uh, he doesn't criticize them for this question, but he does give them a, a very important, very important piece of information about the Pharisees that, that they should take to heart. And notice what he says. First, he says, every plant that my heavenly father is not planted will be rooted up. He's, he's using here a language from the Old Testament. There are a number of places in the Old Testament where it speaks of God's people as being his planting, his garden. Or you think about Psalm 1, blessed is the man who is planted, transplanted might even be a better term there, transplanted by, by the irrigation ditches. Okay, so God's people are are portrayed as his planting. He has planted them. And of course, that reminds us of the language that Jesus is going to use in John 15 when he talks about himself being the vine and we're the branches and we're to bear fruit. So there's that idea that God plants a people for himself and then they bear fruit to his glory. But Jesus says, every plant that my heavenly Father is not planted will be rooted up. And, of course, these talking about the Pharisees. Just because they look so religious, he's saying, don't assume they belong to God's people. They call themselves Jews. They pride themselves in keeping the law. They, they keep the traditions of the elders with, with painstaking accuracy. They, they go to the temple. They pray. They've got all the outward markings but they haven't been planted by God. Be careful who you listen to, who you follow. Because Jesus goes on to say in verse 14, they are blind guides. And you know what happens when blind people lead blind people. They fall into the ditch. They claim to be guides. And you're going, to, you're going to encounter people who claim to be guides spiritually for you. 
Be careful who you listen to. Test what you hear by the word of God. Test what everything I say by the word of God. Don't ever take something that I say as truth just because I said it. Always test the teaching that you get by the word of God. And the Holy Spirit will give you discernment in that. If you belong to Christ, if you've been born again, you have his Holy Spirit to help you to understand and to recognize when there's a blind guy trying to lead you. And in that case, then, look at the imperative in verse 14. Let them alone. Leave them. Ignore them. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say argue with them. He doesn't say debate them. There are times when the best recourse is just to ignore. Okay. When you have blind guides trying to lead you, don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Leave them. Well, the, hopefully the disciples understood that, but evidently they, they still lack understanding because the very next verse... Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. He seems to be referring here, we're used to thinking parable story, but actually it has a broader meaning than that. Uh, it, it can apply to, to any metaphorical language, uh, whether in a story form or not. And so he seems to be referring back to verse 11, that epigram that, that Jesus has given them. Uh, explain it to us, please. And Jesus is really, really sort of admonishing Peter and the other disciples here, isn't he? Are you also still without understanding? Haven't you guys got it yet? Don't you see, he begins the next verse, Perhaps they've been so aware of what the Pharisees are thinking or what the crowd's doing that they haven't really applied their minds to what Jesus has been teaching them. And, of course, we'd have to confess that sometimes we're like that as well. We're distracted, and, and even in, in our Bible study, we're sometimes distracted and don't really get the point. Uh, so in a sense, the disciples need to, to hear that same admonition that he gave to the crowd, right? Hear and understand. You're not understanding. You should be by now. So he proceeds then to unpack that epigram in, in verse 11. And, and again, just notice the, the poetic way this is set up. Uh, to help you remember it, he uses very similar words in two lines. It's sort of like a two-line epigram or, or saying. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. By, by using similar language and just switching one word there, he's really impressing this truth on us. But we want to get what he means. So here's the exposition in verse 17. 
Jesus is expositing, he is explaining his own saying back in verse 11. Don't you see? Don't you have enough common sense, he could be saying here, to see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now, obviously, Jesus is contrasting the physical, and remember the tradition that the Pharisees were castigating Jesus for not observing was an external ritual of hand-washing. And they, they believed that by that external ritual of hand-washing, impurity would be removed and you'd be acceptable before God. Okay? And so Jesus is, is responding to more than just that one tradition. He's really giving a, a, a rule here whereby to judge all of those tra- traditions. So he's broadening the, the focus here. That's a physical thing, he's saying. The, the underlying question here is where does sin come from? Where does your sin come from? Now, you see, the Pharisees' way of thinking is, well, sin is external, okay? I got sin on me because I bumped into a Gentile in the marketplace, so I got my hands dirty, and before I put any bread in my mouth, I have to, I have to purify my hands. They believe sin is external, That is the dominant philosophy of the culture that you live in. This isn't just a problem for Jesus' day. This is the dominant philosophy of the culture that you live here in 21st century in America. It's this idea that sin is outside you. Because, of course, you're basically good. Or at least you're neutral. Jesus is, is rejecting that. Sin is not external, Jesus says, it's internal. And of course, by that, he doesn't mean inside your physical body somewhere. Heart here means mind, what's sometimes called your soul. Who you are is a being has a body. Sin is an internal problem. And the evidence of that, Jesus says, is what comes out of your mouth. It's your words. It's the expression of what is in your heart. So he gives us this Sad litany. Then in verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of your sinful nature comes that reasoning, that way of thinking that is wrong, that is evil. And remember, back in the Sermon on the Mount, 
chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, Jesus has made it clear that that is the problem because he said it's in your inner being, your heart, your mind, that all those sins arise. Remember, he says, don't think that you've obeyed the law against adultery just because you haven't committed the physical act. If you've lusted in your hearts, you're guilty of breaking that sin, or that law, I mean. And he says, don't think that you haven't violated the commandment against murder just because you've never physically taken someone's life. If you've hated someone in your heart, you're guilty of that. So we're not surprised then to read here that he says, out of the heart, out of that inner being comes those evil thoughts. It's not something external. No one forced it upon you. Spurgeon, in commenting on this and preaching on on this passage, points out that you never have to teach a a child to sin. (laughs) None of you parents, I'm sure, took took your children aside and said, now I want to explain to you how to tell a lie (laughs) or how to lose your temper. That bent towards sin is already there. And so, out of the heart come the evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, or it could be translated there, blasphemy. What's coming out in your words and your life, Jesus is saying, proves that sin is an internal thing. And so that's why I say, these are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The gospel does not tell you, okay, here's a new set of rules, here's a new set of traditions by which you can make yourself acceptable to God. The gospel does not do that for you. The gospel doesn't tell you if you just turn over a new leaf, if you just make good resolutions and try your hardest. No, the the gospel, well, remember what Jesus said it was. Repent. Confess the sin that's in your heart. That's what the gospel says. Stop covering up. You need to be cleansed, but you need something far more powerful than just pouring water over your fingers. You need a supernatural work of God. Your sin is so serious that you can't handle it yourself. God has to deal with it, and so that's, the, that's what's behind David's prayer in, in Psalm 51. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, I'm never going to do that again, or I'm going to offer sacrifices, I'm going to kill a lamb to make up for my sin. He, he doesn't say anything like that. Instead, he says in chapter, 
In Psalm 51, verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, of course, he's using metaphorical language here, but what he's saying is, God, you're the only one that can cleanse me. Only you can cleanse a guilty sinner like me. And so he's casting himself on the mercy of God, praying that that he would give him that cleansing that he needs. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. God sometimes breaks your bones, brings suffering, so that you realize your sin, in order that he can bring you to joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. And here's the the key verse, I think, in relative to our text this morning. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You don't need just heart medicine or even heart surgery. You need a heart transplant. You need, as the prophet in the Old Testament says, you need to have the heart of stone that's in you, that's in rebellion against God, taken out and a living heart given to you. And so David asks, God to create that in him. He cannot create that himself. Cast me not away from your presence. I deserve it. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, even though I deserve it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. It's not the traditions, it's not the external rituals that you're looking for. Here's what God's looking for, David says. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifices that God accepts, the sacrifices God is looking for are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Aren't you grateful? All God is looking for from sinners like us is a broken heart over our sin. Now make sure you, you notice that, a broken heart, okay? That's more than just being sorry you're caught, okay? We've all experienced that, haven't we? 
where your concern is, is really over the fact that you were caught and now are going to have to face the consequences. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a broken heart. What breaks your heart? What breaks a heart in the way that, that David is talking about here? I think more than anything else, it's a vision of the holiness of God. It's it's having God show you his holiness and the fact that he, as a holy God, has loved you. That's what breaks a heart. There's a, a book uh, called Little Men, written by Louisa May Alcott, who lived in Massachusetts. And I read that, I read that book just as a, a young boy. But one scene burned its way into my mind. I can't forget it. The little men, they're the, they're the boys in a school, overseen by a schoolmaster. And this is back in the day where you do something wrong, you get wrapped with a ruler. <laughs> and it can hurt pretty well. Uh, my mother preferred a wooden spoon. <laughs> but in the course of this, this story, a, a little boy breaks a rule. I don't remember what he did wrong. Uh, I almost think maybe he was lying or cheating or something like that. And so he gets called into the schoolmaster's or up to the schoolmaster's desk, and he's terrified, of course, just a little guy, and really afraid of getting that rap that he knows is coming. And the schoolmaster uh, talks to him and says, you, you know that what you did is wrong. And the little boy, beginning to cry now, says, yes, yes, I know, I'm, I'm sorry. And the schoolmaster says, you're right. You do deserve punishment. But I'm going to take your punishment for you. And so he hands the ruler to the little boy and holds out his hand. He says, you, you strike my hand. The little boy doesn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he loves this schoolmaster. You have to do it. You have to hit my hand. This little boy makes a feeble strike to the hand, and the schoolmaster says, that's not enough. You have to do it much harder than that. He makes the little boy strike his hand, and the hand starts to turn red and even to bleed a little bit. The little boy breaks down in tears seizes his hand and starts to kiss it. That's a broken heart for sin. Grieving because your sin has offended God. That's why David begins Psalm 51 the way he does, saying against you and you only have I sinned. He's not denying the fact that his sin has had consequences for other people and for himself, but he's saying, above all, I have sinned against you. As Christians, we're to live in daily repentance. 
In fact, that's how uh, Martin Luther began his, uh, his theses, that the Christian life is not about doing rituals of penance, saying Hail Marys, or giving an offering to pay for your sins. No, it's about daily repenting, having your heart broken by your sin. And it's about living then in faith, trusting in that forgiveness that God has given you. Okay, these go hand in hand. You repent of your sin and you believe God when he says you're forgiven. And then, then you live in light of that forgiveness you live in faith. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action. What he literally says there is, gird up the loins of your mind. <laughs> Pull your work pants up. Get your work gloves on. Get ready to work. That's sort of what he's saying. Be sober-minded. Get serious about following Christ. And set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see how those go together? You repent of your sin and you receive forgiveness and then you live in hope of the grace that is yours. And as a believer, we're, we're going to do that over and over again, aren't we? <laughs> because we're still battling the flesh. We're still prone to fall short. But every time you sin is an opportunity to come to the Lord in repentance, and every opportunity to receive forgiveness is an opportunity to, to commit yourself again. As obedient children, Peter goes on to say, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Remember what your forgiveness cost and use that as a spur to holy living. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having then purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living 
and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. You have the word of God that when you repent of your sin, when your heart is broken by your sin against him, he extends to you forgiveness. And by his Holy Spirit, he strengthens you through his word to live in obedience to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is our desire uh, to, to live as the people that you have made us. Uh, we, we know the work of salvation is totally yours. It is you who gave us life, who caused us to be born again. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will enable us to live up to that calling, that we can, we can be who we were created in you to be. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's who's not begun that walk, I pray that you would bring them to that point of brokenheartedness over their sin so that they can receive the wonderful forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ and begin that walk with you with a new heart implanted by your Holy Spirit and enable us, Lord, to, to persevere in faith. We so easily... We so easily become discouraged. Uh, Give us strength uh, to continue to live in repentance and faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.